Welcome to Activation Energy by the Chemical Angel Network. I'm your host, Selma Duhovich. In this episode, I speak with Mitch Krause, an environmental scientist with a background in manufacturing. Mitch was the chairman of the Sustainability Committee at the National Outdoor Apparel Manufacturers Association and has worked for IBM Microelectronics Division in various roles across facility, environmental, chemical, and product stewardship management. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Mitch. My pleasure. I'd like to start by asking about your experience in the textile and apparel industry. What was your role there? So I worked for a brand for just under five years, 2014 to 2019. During that time, I also chaired the OIA, the Outdoor Industry Association Steering Committee for Chemistry, Materials, and But in this moment, um, and largely as a result of that work and the exposure to the industry, I'm now leading a five-year project with the UN on, uh, or I should say in the textile industry in Bangladesh, Pakistan, Vietnam, and Indonesia. And from time to time, as time allows, I do some side consulting with a handful of brands. What exactly is that five-year UN project? Can you elaborate on that? Sure. It really started, I I was invited to speak at uh, the Jeff UN Assembly in Vietnam. It was the sixth assembly in about 2017-ish. And the folks there that I connected with wanted to do something in the textile space because they hadn't been focused in on that yet. So over the course of that time, we built a sketch of what a meaningful, impactful project around textiles could look like. And so long story short, that project was just approved by the Jeff CEO and will likely be going into execution over the next few months. And over that five-year time horizon, there are a handful of deliverables. Part of my job is to kind of quarterback the project through the various stakeholders, if you will, in the value chain from other consulting service providers, NGOs, brands, governments, government and environmental ministries, and, and so on. It's a pretty big project, and I'm, I'm pretty proud of it. You mentioned value chain. What does that look like in the textile industry? Um, going from raw chemicals to the shirt that I'm wearing? Well, I have, I do have a, a great slide of what the textile value chain looks like. Um, and perhaps not surprisingly, it looks like, or it's very similar to any ecosystem. It's reasonably complex, but at the source, right, there's, there's two channels pretty much, right? There's natural fibers that come from animals and the ground plants. And then everything, or not, I shouldn't say everything, but the majority of synthetics and chemistry minus, you know, the acids and bases, things of that nature, ultimately come from the petrochemical industry, oil. So as it weaves up from those two channels, fibers are created or harvested. There's a multitude of processes depending on the material to spin it into uh, ultimately a textile dyeing processes. There's a multitude of chemicals used regardless of the whether it's a natural or a synthetic. 
our good friends at Blue Sign calculated at some point some time ago that from ground to finished textile product, your shirt, your your fleece that you're wearing takes somewhere in the space of, you know, one kilogram of chemicals to produce one kilogram of textile. And again, depending on what the fiber is, a multitude of chemicals are used from, again, ground to, to a piece of apparel. So what chemicals are used in textiles manufacturing? I knew there was a lot of talk about perfluorinated chemicals or PFCs. What are they and why do they have a negative reputation? More importantly, what is the industry doing about them? Well, a little basic chemistry lesson without getting too academic. PFCs and similar chemicals, the carbon-halogen bond, so that could be bromine, chlorine, fluorine, iodine, not so much, is purely anthropogenic, man-made. As a result of that, there are very few, if any, natural mechanisms whether it's the human body or nature, to break that bond. This could be chlorinated solvents that are used in the dry cleaning industry, in all sorts of cleaning process across multiple industries. And in this instance, the coating on gear that's meant to keep or to have water repellency and stain resistance. That's the big one, obviously, in, in the outdoor industry and the apparel industry. So with that basic premise and the, the way that these chemicals are created, the quantities that are used across the globe, because they don't break down, they accumulate in our bodies, they accumulate in the environment and all the lovely critters of the, of the planet. Some are carcinogenic. There's, there's a whole litany that the audience can look up. If you haven't, or the audience hasn't seen Dark Waters or The Devil We Know, those are, those are pretty good stories and pictures of what this industry looks like and what the challenges are to get on the other side of it. So a few years ago, the outdoor industry as a whole largely moved away from the historical PFCs called C8, and there's a multitude of different kinds of them, but they all behave similarly. And the technical solutions for what's called C0, PFC-free solutions, really hadn't been developed enough to provide the technical performance that the industry was looking for. So the chemical industry responded by producing C6, which is a just a shorter version by two carbons. It doesn't work as good as the historical, and it's going to take some years to prove it. But if we, if we go back to that basic premise of that carbon-halogen bond is anthropogenic and there's very few known natural me mechanisms to break it down, there's already evidence and we'll likely find ultimately that it's an incredibly regrettable substitution. If we deal with chemicals as a class perspective, I'm not sure if you know Arlene Bloom at the Green Science Policy Institute, I would recommend that you and your audience uh, look her up. She's an amazing woman and does some really amazing work with her team on policy around what she calls or refers to uh, the six classes of hazardous chemicals that are prevalent, not only in the apparel industry, but they're pretty ubiquitous. Would you say the apparel industry is focused on sustainability? And if so, what is driving that? 
It's picking up speed for sure. I don't know that we can have one universal answer for the entire industry, but it is picking up momentum. Some brands, you know, you you have the the broad spectrum of, you know, brands that are stepping into this for the very first time. We know we need to do something about it. We're not really sure. You have brands that are in some sort of progressive stage that they've, you know, they've hired people, they have policies and standards around it. Um, and then you, you all the way up to the, the some of the aspirational brands that are setting out clear targets for what sustainability means to them and how they're going to go about, you know, achieving their one, three and five year goals. The focus largely in part right now has shifted and perhaps rightly so to climate. There's some pretty fantastic work going on there. There's always a lot more to do, but most of the brands, again, you have different channels, right? You have the outdoor industry, you have fast fashion, you have home goods and and on and on and on. They're using largely life cycle assessment tools uh, and carbon accounting tools to measure and manage where the opportunities are to lower their impact. So that's, in the simplest of terms, that's kind of where the apparel industry is. Now, to put it into shape, the textile industry contributes about 6% of the global carbon emissions loading to the planet, but it, it also contributes about 20% of the global loading of wastewater to the planet. So just to kind of put that in shape, it's not, not that climate isn't important. It's, in, it's critically important to all of us. But I just wanted to kind of throw out those numbers to kind of give it a little, little shape. Can you talk a bit about the impact of uh, textile manufacturing on the environment? How much water and energy does that process use? And what is the greenhouse uh, gas emission profile? Like a lot of things, the devil is in the details. It depends on a multitude of factors, but to kind of keep it simple and at a high level so that it's digestible for the audience, it really depends on primarily a brand's leverage and influence to have their supply chain adhered to both national standards and the brand's standards on all of these things that whether it's a restricted substances list, a manufacturing restricted substances list, air emissions controls, uh, occupational health and safety controls, but largely in part, this is a, a much older, I'll call it problem. As, as we all know, some 30 now, almost even 40 years ago, Europe and North America, you know, largely abandoned its workforce in search of lower cost center uh, labor. So production and factories were shut down, they were moved offshore, and it did two things that kind of amplified the, the, the problem as North America and Europe were really starting to kind of get a handle on it themselves. It moved it far away where it's hard to see. It obviously took advantage of labor laws or lack thereof, which I will say the brands that at least I've been aware of or connected with through the industry are are doing a good job on the social and fair labor practices, whether that be through the ILO standards and, and such. But it also skirted the important environmental regulations. So lack of enforcement, and this is a key component of the UN project, to give or to put some wind in the sails so that the environmental ministries of these countries can gain momentum on at least 
enforcing their basic standards. Now, some of these countries where textile production and assembly has moved to may not even have some of these basic standards that we you know, have in North America and in, in the EU regarding worker health and safety, air emissions. Air emissions is a big one, especially in the footwear industry. There's a lot of adhesives and, and such used to assemble footwear. So the global loading of VOCs, volatile organic chemicals, that are the carriers for adhesives can really contribute quite a bit to the global loading, which ultimately has a carbon accounting piece of it. So those need to be controlled. Those that needs to be reined in and controlled a bit better. In at least my experience. So you're talking footwear, hard goods, and textiles. So there's that piece, um, and the same goes for wastewater, which is the you know the big contribution. So. There are absolutely fantastic tools and solutions out there for brands in the textile value chain to use, whether that be, you know, the ones that we know, like the Blue Sign Certification or the Hohenstein Institute and Okotex and the ZDHC, all putting a lot of energy around wastewater standards for the textile industry. And, and that, that's, there's, there's a lot of good work there uh, and it's helping. Now what they need to do, and, and they know it, I'm not saying this because they don't know it, they, they know it, is continue to propagate these programs throughout the world so that the market share is really well covered and at least those important sectors of the textile industry, dyeing and finishing, fiber generation, all the different processes that are produced wastewater at least have basic reasonable and then you know aspirational controls over it all the while right so that that flattens flattens the playing field if you will you have to have these facilities controls in place they have to be operated by people who know how to do these things and then that gives this breathing room and space for the chemical industry and brands to continue to work on, you know, less toxic, you know, green chemistry substitutions and things of that nature so that we're driving toward eliminating and replacing these historical hazards with more benign chemistry materials and formulas. Let's switch gears now and talk about the semiconductor industry. Can you describe your involvement in it? I was in the semiconductor industry for somewhere approaching 15 years as a contractor, as a consultant, as an IBM or uh, IBM spun off their last division of hardware to global foundries a couple of years uh, ago now. So I can speak to kind of my experience at the place that I worked, perhaps being a little representative of what others might look like, but I don't want to you know, make assumptions. What I, what I do know is the, the location that I worked at in Vermont has a very, very long history. Um, it was built in the mid-50s, and it's still operating today. I had the tremendous fortune of, of spending that time there and, and really learning and being surrounded by some pretty incredible people. My role overall changed over the course of time, but it was largely under that umbrella of facilities manufacturing, environmental management, chemicals management, and then around 2003 morphed into what was then termed product stewardship as a result of the EU Rojas Directive. What is the Rojas Directive? 
that was one of the, you know, that was the, the first biggie to really point out restricting certain hazardous substances in electronic products. Mm, so that I then see. took on a life of its own. We drilled in and, and really had to understand exactly what was in everything that we were making and selling to our customers. Then Reach happens and Prop 65 was always around. And so what was fascinating to me about that experience is how relevant it is. We're talking over a computer. These electronic products are just part of the fabric of our lives and their society. So, and there's an enormous amount of chemistry, materials, and energy used to, to make these things work. So that was that was largely my journey at, a, at the 80,000 foot view. So facilities management, occupational health and safety, environmental management, product stewardship, and then kind of tripping into that the sustainability piece of that. I will say, at least from my time there, we didn't necessarily call it sustainability. It was just good and informed management practices to lean out resource consumption. We looked at it as how do we get better at reducing costs and risk? A U.S.-based company manufacturing in the U.S. challenged with being profitable and relevant against what I'll call manufacturing sectors in, in the lower cost regions of the planet. But very similarly to the textile industry, we got really good at it. But corporate America, uh, that's a very, very loose term, continually started exporting manufacturing offshore and making the very problems that we were working on, you know, many orders of magnitude worse, whether that be worker health and safety or energy consumption or emissions. The plant that I worked at got its energy from Hydro-Quebec. So that was part of that carbon accounting. And we used an enormous amount of energy, somewhere around 40 to $50 million a year. So the energy consumption was actually greater than the city that plant was located, just to kind of put it into, into shape there. A, an enormous amount of chemistry used somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 million north of $25 million annual spend on chemicals to make semiconductors chips work processed. We were permitted for much more, but we had three different waste treatment plants that we owned. We processed, I think, about three and a half million gallons of water a day. We made about a half a million gallons of uh, deionized water a day for cleaning and all the different processes. Um, five different dedicated both drain and exhaust systems. They're separate, but there just happened to be five, I think about five of each. So we really had a good handle on how to manage chemistry, get efficient with waste, because each one of those things uh, has an enormous amount of overhead if you don't manage them appropriately. This is a bit of a uh, fuzzy space for me. Can you describe how semiconductor chips are manufactured? Uh, what type of chemicals are used? Sure. The, the simple answer is it's easier to talk about what's not used than what is because there's, there's a multitude used. But what you're, the basic process is you're starting with a piece of glass, silicon, and you're building a city. It's layer by layer by layer. And the way that it works is that the silicon is called doped with arsenic, boron, phosphorus. So you're taking carbon, right, which in silicon 
right? Carbon is a four, plus four. And the way that you create the base of the semiconductor is charge differential, right? So when you dope the silicon, you're creating and you're using chemicals, molecules to create a plus and minus one on each side. So that way current can move across it. So the basic processes, there's photolithography. So there's masks created. It has a design. They shine light through it. So it creates an image. And then that image is essentially, uh, again, at a high level, the print of the circuit. And then the layers are filled in with a layer of this kind of metal. It's etched away with using lasers and chemistry. There's polishing that happens at each step. And so you're each one of these layers creates all of these circuits, which ultimately ends up being a, you know, a working semiconductor. So there's a multitude of metals that are used. So when you're using metals and you're, you're not able to, or I don't want to say not able to, but the, those are etched away. That can be done with lasers, but also with, with chemicals. When you're talking about silicon, there's quite a bit of hydrofluoric acid and used as a result that a hydrofluoric acid is the only acid that can actually etch glass. A multitude of gases through various processes from known ozone depleters to chlorine and acid in gas form, silane, and on and on and on. I could give you a list of the chemistry used. It's, it's quite long because it takes about 300 process steps to go from glass to you know a, a finished wafer. And it takes about a month to go from the starting line to the what I'll call the first finish line of a, what a finished wafer looks like. And then that gets diced up and packaged on a substrate and then ultimately input into a product you know, through a soldering and, and assembly process. And where are those millions of gallons of water per day used? Is it for cleaning as a solvent or? All, all, of, all of the above, all of the above. It just depends on, you know, which of the 300 process steps we're, we're talking about. And the water comes from the municipalities? Well, and then we, we essentially make it, right? So we take in water, but we have to clean it ultra pure. When you're talking the semiconductor industry, right, is it ultra, ultra, ultra pure environment from water to chemicals to everything else. And, you know, like a piece of hair, your hair, one strand of hair across a chip, you know, looks comparatively like a giant braided steel cable that you'd see on a, on a, on a you know, a big bridge in terms of you know, size. So it commands that the fabricator is an ultra pure environment. So you put in ultra pure water, which after use comes out as a toxic stew. It can be. And so each is the high tech sector. So each of these tools and I, the fabricator that I worked at at one time had somewhere around 2,500 tools, manufacturing tools over on a, about a 3 million square foot manufacturing facility. So each one of those is designed before they're installed. And we understand what chemical processes they're using. So we can, we can design which drain systems they need to be connected to, which exhaust systems they need to be connected to, which wastes need to be containerized because they can't go up the stack and they can't go to the waste treatment plant. So containerized 
wastes, uh, whether that be solid or liquid. And so you have this process where you have the facilities infrastructure dialed in so that when the tool is released to manufacturing, the wastes are already segregated so that they're going to the right place. Hence, over the course of time, and before I even started there and then it continued, we had three different kinds of wastewater treatment plants in our overall wastewater treatment process to, to handle and manage that. An interesting little tidbit, you know, we're talking about sustainability and chemicals and how is that all managed. My, my vague recollection is, is that the water that we took in had more phosphorus in it than what we put back into the river after we processed it through our waste treatment facility, just to kind of give you an idea. So, you know, Vermont, it's the, it's the dairy industry, phosphorus loading and eutrophication are, are pretty significant, very, very old and long-term problem for the area. But that was one of the benefits of the, the capabilities that we had. And I'm not trying to put rose-colored glasses on, on. It's all perfect and that kind of thing. It's just, a, it's just an example. But each, each one of these process steps from manufacturing all the way to waste requires an enormous amount of talent, right? PhDs and process engineers and mechanical engineers. And it, it's a lot of staffing to really do it right and well. And, and that, was, that, that, that was really the a fascinating experience to be in and around all these different experts to not only make these products and make them work well, but how to manage all the bits and pieces from energy to water to chemicals to occupational health and safety and customer requirements. And then the, the global regulatory environment on finished products. So and 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 that piece is and and rightly so still on a J curve, right? So there's just a dedicated staff just looking at what legislation is evolving out of what jurisdiction and how does that impact our products and do we have a problem do we have to or do we not right that that decision matrix to understand whether or not we have to act and the minimum right is that you have this continual communication with your customers to respond what about this what about that so knowing what we really really got good at was knowing was really, really knowing what was in our finished products. We knew exactly down to the nickel what was going into making them for each different manufacturing department, right? The, the counting of it all. We knew exactly what was going where, how much was being used and so on. But we had to get really good at what I said earlier, leaning that out, becoming more efficient, but also really, really diving in, rolling up our sleeves and understanding well, what's exactly in these products that we're selling? So Rojas, right, was a restriction on certain toxic heavy metals and brominated flame retardants. Well, are we using those? Where are we using those? Can we get out of using those? Do we need to have uh, or apply for an exemption to give us time to figure out how to get out of it? And so on and so forth. In the few minutes that we have left, let's switch gears to the beverage industry. I think it's intriguing how you went from textiles to semiconductors to now brewing beer. Well, what it really speaks to is, at least in my humble opinion, the world-class training experience standards, process thinking methodologies that 
really is the DNA of what IBM was when I was there. And those tools are universal because they're processing standard oriented, which means you might not know this other industry, but you have the tools to apply that are pretty universal to any industry. And, you know, there's, there's a lot in, in the weeds with, with other industries that you have to learn, but that framework can largely be applied to any industry. That makes sense. I'm finding that some skills I gained in an academic research lab are readily translated to a startup setting. If, if I may, I, have, I do have one really good example of that. That's I tried to implement, well, I implemented at my, the brand that I work for. Uh, I helped the outdoor industry learn how to do it. It's part of the UN project now, and it's translating chemical information into basic accounting practices. And that was a lot of what I did at IBM, but really learned in college and graduate school of looking at ecosystems and understanding whether it be the transport and fate of nutrients or pollutants in the environment, that, that methodology can be applied to industry and so on and so forth. So chemistry can often kind of, it's the class that scared people. They didn't like it. It was weird and, and all that. But so if we, if we remove the scariness of it because people aren't interested or it was something that they took in high school because they had to and they didn't like it, there are other ways to communicate and look at information such that you're looking at movements. What's happening? How much? Where? What does it do? Where does it end up? And those are basic accounting practices that are, again, universal. And that's largely what uh, the carbon accounting and life cycle assessment is doing. It's, it's putting information into a framework so that it can be digested and understood and the, you know, the opportunities kind of make themselves known. So how exactly did you end up at Norfolk Brewing? Tell me more about that. <laughs> okay. Um, well, so a dear friend of mine who we went to college together and developed what is now the environmental chemistry program, he built this brewery. This, it was a little one barrel tap room in a very rural area. And I came down here to kind of scale it up for production manufacturing for kind of retail wholesale sales. So, I, you know, we ap applied the basic concepts of, of manufacturing to just another industry, how to do it, how to do it well, what standards, what methodologies are needed, what procedures. Brewing, oh, by the way, is about 90% cleaning. So that's a really important piece of the process. So it was just looking at what do we have? What are, what are the requirements? What do we need? And kind of filling in the gaps to kind of standardize what that process looks like so that at the end of the day, you have a really good product to offer customers. And how are your products different from other beer on the market? So we use all non-GMO grains and about half of those are organic. So we use a lot of organic grains, but we don't put the organic, you know, certified organic label on our, on our cans because we, it's, it's, it's not just that it's hard to do. It's just that it's, we're satisfied with a lot of the other products that we're using that are, you know, non-GMO and clean in other ways, but they just not certified organic. So we're proud of that, right? Because 
the whole non-GMO thing is important and it, it's very, very connected to glyphosate, which we want to avoid at all costs. We manage our water, which is not unique, but a lot of breweries don't. So the water in our area is very hard. It's good for brewing certain, but not all styles. So we filter everything out of our water through a series of particle size filters, through carbon traps, and then ultimately through a reverse osmosis membrane. And then what we do is depending on the style that we're making, and I'll talk about that in a minute, we match the water chemistry. So the, the minerals that are in the water profile for the, the town or the city that that style was very first made in. So what's interesting about that is it gives the products separation. There's a different mouthfeel to each one because some styles, you know, want or require softer water than others. The mineral content, you know, is different and it all adds to that experience of what that style is and should be. I'm not sure if you're a beer drinker, but, and then there's just an so many, just so many fantastic craft breweries out there. But you, have you ever noticed that you might sample some different products from them and they all have a somewhat similar mouthfeel or flavor? It's, it's largely because they're not managing their water. So this is a way to kind of nail the style accurately. And if you're not, it just doesn't make sense to us if the product that you're selling is about 95% water. If you're not managing your water, what are you doing? We're a tiny brewery, right? We make some odd and interesting things for our tap room, but we have five products in cans and kegs that we sell across the state from Walmarts and Whole Foods and other grocery stores to liquor stores and, and restaurants. Three of which, so our Pilsner, our Woodsman Pilsner, just won best Pilsner in the state. Our Easy Rider Lager, which is a super light lager, was a runner-up. And our Scurvy Dog IPA was also a runner-up. The Arkansas Times does kind of like an annual craft beer review. And we've only been in the wholesale space for about two years. So we feel really good about what we're doing and the products that we're offering our customers. That's great. It sounds like you're poised for growth. Any chance your beer is available in Colorado? We, no, we're so small that we sell everything that we can make in state. We are able to distribute ourselves in state, but we would have to find a distributor to go across borders. And it's, I think it's, it's certainly possible in the future, but for right now, with the amount that we're able to produce, so we're a, a 15 barrel brew house, we can sell everything that we, we can make in state. I'll be sure to monitor your progress. Thank you so much for sharing your story and insight with me and the audience, Mitch. 